Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This episode of Unfiltered is presented by My.Games and their new shooter, Warface Breakout. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, my monthly interview series where I have the privilege to sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. And today, uh, this, one's, this one's for me. Hopefully you guys enjoy it, too. But uh, Diablo 2 is one of my all-time favorite games, and I've got two veterans of that team who are also at work on a new game that, if, you're li- if you like Diablo, you're going to be interested in, Torchlight 3. But my guests today, Max Schaefer and Matt Ullman, Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Well, this is going to be fun. So uh, this kind of worked out. You're promoting Torchlight 3. You're not here for your health. We'll talk about that. We'll get to that. But but it works out as well. In addition to the Torchlight 3 uh, coming up, we've got the 20th anniversary of Diablo 2 which, as of when this airs, is like a week later. So it's the it's June 29th, I believe, uh, from 2000 is when Diablo 2 had shipped. And with that anniversary, uh, I wanted to throw this out to both of you. Maybe maybe Max first. It is Diablo 2 the best Diablo? Settle the debate right now. Well, um, that's a tough question. Um, I would say that Diablo 2, with the Lord of Destruction expansion pack added on to it. Still Diablo 2 is the uh, is the best Diablo. Yes. No question. <laughs> Matt musically, it's gameplay wise, what you know, you you were in the thick of it. What's uh what say you on this on this critical issue? Uh well, I'm not going to speak as to Diablo 3 because I didn't have much to do with it and uh I did not play through it. Um so I can't really talk about the series as a whole in an objective way. I think you know Diablo 1 did a few things better than Diablo 2. Not many. Diablo 2 was a great team, though. And the great thing about Diablo 2 was that all the different components in terms of, like, what made our Bay Area team original uh, and, like, obsessive in a good way was there. Um, And we also had all of, like, the marketing and QA muscle of Irvine uh, and, like, their cinematics team really trying to make a statement and put together, like, a 30- or 40-minute thing kind of, like, to give us wind at our back. So I will say that Diablo 2 was definitely like uh, all, the, all the various components in terms of what we were good at and, and what Irvine was good at were both flexed pretty hard and pretty well, I thought. So yeah, it was a great project in that way, sure. Yeah, in I'm some sure. ways, I'm sorry, I was just going to add on to that. In some ways, Diablo 1 um, had a raw, creepy nature to it that you, know, you, just, you can't replicate that. And uh, it wasn't because of our talent necessarily. <laughs> we got kind of lucky. Um, but when I go back and play it now, I just can't stand the walking speed. It's just so slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask Matt, what, what were those one or two elements that you that you feel like uh, Diablo 1 actually did better? Uh, Diablo 1, number one, it was scary right off the bat. Uh, you felt kind of powerless and slow in like a dramatic, frightening way. The Butcher was genuinely frightening. We've never uh, been able to to replicate the butcher moment. 
from yeah, Diablo the, uh, 1. And we have tried. Yeah, for <laughs> Yeah, it whole, just, it's just impossible to replicate. <laughs> the whole story with the kidnapped kid in Leoric, I thought was actually a tight, focused story. Whereas Diablo 2 had really entertaining cinematics, and I thought that the narrative element did a good job, and Matt Householder did, did a great job of keeping the cinematics on track with like the in-game story. However, it was kind of a big, sprawling mess to a degree, too, in that you don't really know why we're riffing on Amadeus and it has to do with the guy in a hood. Whereas with Diablo 1, it was very kind of urgent and, and, uh, and kind of packaged a little more tightly. So, uh, Max, Diablo 2 is generally regarded, it's not just me, it is, it is regarded as one of the best games ever. Uh, now, have, have, have at any point in the last 20 years or with the anniversary coming up, do you, do you really kind of, do you think about it much or reflect on the accomplishment of making just like an all-time great video game? Well, f first of all, you, you can't really grasp and reflect on it because it's just unbelievable. Um, and, you know, it's not like we sat down and said, you know what, we're going to make one of the best games of all time and be talking about it 20 years later. Um, it came as a complete surprise to us. Um, but the effort was, was genuine. Um, and it's particularly with Diablo 2, we had one of the longest crunch periods towards the end of the development. In fact, the whole last year, we were working seven days a week, every waking hour, you know, going home at one in the morning, coming back to work first thing in the morning, right through holidays. I mean, it was actually not good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it resulted in a, in a product that we're still talking about 20 years later. So I guess in a way it was all worth it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it has, it has uh, colored everything that we've done since. Um, obviously, the Torchlight series uh, draws inspiration from Diablo, um, and I think that that even video games outside the genre draw in some ways uh, from some of the conventions that that came about in Diablo, especially with interface and I mean the question mark over the quest giver's head, you know that sort of thing. A lot of these things were were invented for Diablo that are just kind of taken for granted now. Uh, now. There are rumors for now, just rumors of a Diablo 2 remaster that have been floating around. Now, if if that were to happen, I want to hear from both of you guys on this. What would you want to what would you want to see or make sure to not see out of it? Like what should or shouldn't it do? What's what would an ideal resurrection of Diablo 2 look like? Wow. Um, first of all, I think it's probably impossible to really capture it um, because the 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 game was made it wasn't even a true 3d game that everything was was rendered sprites and yeah. um and so to 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 really capture the exact feel of what happens when you click in a 3d environment is going to be uh challenging at best um so you know they're going to have to spend a lot of their time not just on recreating maybe slightly higher fidelity graphics and all that that's the easy part um, it's easy to go back and just kind of one for one make the make the game look better. Uh, it's it's going to be the feel and the atmosphere that that kind of are inherent in the technology that was behind it, which was at this point uh, we can look back and say it's kind of spaghetti code. It was a custom engine. It was stuff that hadn't been done before. Um, and I would assume that a remaster is going to be done um, using an established graphics engine with its own conventions and its own quirks. Um, and so much of what made it special was the feel. And the and 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 the intangibles. So it's a daunting task, but I mean, I hope that the ideal the ideal remaster would be something that actually retains that feel and that atmosphere, but just has modern uh, a modern take on the graphics. Um, and honestly, I hope they pull it off. Um, it, it just 
I'd, I'm glad they're doing it and I don't have to do it. <laughs> uh, how about for you, Matt? Is they, they're, they're not allowed to touch the music, right? Can't remaster that. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. With <laughs> my, my, only, uh, my only strong opinion is that it needs to have uh, more violence, more gore, more nakedness. As long as they do that, then they'll be true to the series in terms of what we are going for as artists. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. The, the the game was was made to be shocking and push boundaries, um, and and you know, when you have an opportunity to remake it with modern graphics, <laughs> you know, you're going to be confronted very quickly with how much are you really going to want to reproduce something that was down to a few pixels in the original version, um, and not have you know succumb to the temptation to make a censored version. Right. Um, and we're talking about modern Blizzard right now, and they have shareholders and things like that that we didn't have to worry about back in the day. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, I, I, I am curious as to what their approach is going to be. That's sort of true. We had Bob Davidson. Davidson was briefly a public stock, good old DAVD. Yeah. And Bob Davidson, I think, liked the fact that we were edgy and liked, I mean, that was the thing about, about the Diablo, the first two games, is they were sort of, uh, they were really like the little heavy metal moment that you had with your PC in terms of like, we really did intentionally want to make it just a little bit shocking, like in the original butcher room. And a I mean, lot there was, of like, there was full frontal nudity. Yeah. And, 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 that was kind of, and I think actually, you know, people that had more of a corporate nine to five that might've even been a slightly older audience, liked the fact that it was like a little bit different than anything you get in a gaming world in that way. I think that was a part of it. So, guys, does the does the uh, the monetary success of Diablo two ever sink in? So, listen to this. This I, I was getting ready for this. This is uh, sales numbers, at least according to Wikipedia. Which, all right, take it for what you will. But on its debut, the day one, Diablo two sells one hundred eighty four thousand units. All right, global sales hit a million after two weeks, two million after one and a half months. Uh, it gets a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records in 2000 for being the fastest-selling computer game ever, uh, and then hits 2.75 million globally during 2000. Basically, of its day, it's the GTA V of of video game sales. So, did, at the time, you, know, you talked about the 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 year-long difficult crunch. Yeah. Uh, do you get? a taste of that success at all? Do you, do you get a, do you get a big bonus? Do you get anything? I mean, I know that the economics are probably of, of game development are probably a good bit different now than they were then. I'm not sure for better or for worse. Yeah. So that's, it's an interesting topic. Um, yeah. First of all, yes, we did get decent bonuses back in the day. We shared kind of a corporate wide bonus structure with the, uh, with the Blizzard South guys. Um, but we touched on this before we went on air. Um, we started making Diablo one as an independent, uh, development house called Condor Incorporated. Right. On Matt's coffee mug yes, right there. And we, uh, we were acquired by blizzard, um, halfway through making Diablo one. And so, um, putting two and two together, our valuation was pre Diablo, <laughs> which is to say we were nobody. And, <laughs> and it absolutely makes me wish that we had, you know, sold out to Blizzard after, <laughs> after these sales figures came out because the, the what's behind me would look a lot different. Um, <laughs> had that been the case. Um, but no, we were, we were treated fairly at the time and, and we didn't really think of it at the time as that we had lost out on a lot of money because we were just so shocked and surprised that something that we had made was 
um, was making an impact all over the world. Uh, now, Diablo didn't necessarily invent the action RPG per se, but it certainly perfected it, popularized it. You had waves of Diablo-like games that came out in the years after, from Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance on consoles, Champions of Norath, so on and so forth. What Are, are there any of those uh, games that stand out to you? Do you tend to see them as copycats? I'm kind of curious of how you feel about the genre now. Well, I mean, I, I actually like to see it. You know, first of all, it's a tribute to Diablo when anything comes out that has those elements in it and is evocative of that. Um, so it's a flattering thing to see. Um, I, I think that anyone who makes a successful ARPG has done something uh, significant because it is a uniquely difficult genre to make games in. And I, I think that that's maybe not appreciated uh, across the board very much, but it's just, there's a lot of fiddly parts to an ARPG and it's very easy for them to go wrong. Um, so when, when someone comes out with one that, that is a commercial success and is a fun time, uh, you just have to respect what they've done. Um, and in the meantime, um, you get to meet the people behind them in some cases and, uh, and become friends with them. And it's, it, you know, we're kind of a club. Um, yeah. Just recently, we uh, had the, the, the privilege of being flown down for ExileCon by the Path of Exile guys. Um, and we're able to, to go to New Zealand and, and uh, go to their convention. And it was just super fun and awesome. And people were so friendly and appreciative. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I like to see it. I like to see competitors. I, 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 think it, it, I think, first of all, we're still at the beginning of scratching the surface of what the ARPG genre can be. I think it's going to be with us long past. Even now, the, you're saying Even that. now. Even today, yes. 2020. Yes, even now, today, 2020, um, this is a genre that's going to be with us until we're all long gone. Um, so it's, it's cool to, for me to see uh, what other people are doing at their take on it and, you know, what twist they have. There's always a twist, you know, whether it's uh, turning it into a giant MMO like Path of Exile or in the case of uh, a guy who became uh, one of the founders of the Torchlight franchise, Travis Baldry, made a little tiny, super low budget one man version called Fate um, that was just a kick in the pants to play and really fun and cool. And so, you know, it, it, the, the breadth of what can be done is, uh, is great. And um, we never look at it as really as competitors, but really like building and expanding on the genre. Matt, where do you sit with, uh, with the other ARPGs out there? Um, you know, the, the only ones I, I know that well are the Bethesda series, which isn't really an ARPG. Uh, just because, you know, uh, just in terms of keeping an eye on on Oblivion and Skyrim and whatnot. Uh, generally, when I play stuff as a gamer, when I have the time to really dig in and binge, I really love uh, I love real-time strategy, but it's pretty rare. I haven't had a period in a good couple of years when I've been really able to binge on the Total War series and check in, like, where they're at, um, just in terms of what I personally enjoy. Um it's hard for me to, uh, I mean, there's so many design elements that like WoW took from Diablo 2, mm -hmm. uh, so many design fundamentals and approaches to gear. I mean, there's so much weird crossover in gaming, like the That's fact that the Destiny formula uh, was more or less developed by the team that Max was with that I was not with him on for seven or eight years, and that the formula behind Hellgate more or less kind of became Destiny, uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of mushy 
mushy barriers in terms of like, you know, even though we kind of fleshed out the randomized loot mechanic with D2 and pioneered it with Diablo, it found its way into the formula of a lot of different games. So it's really kind of hard to say like where fantasy as a genre ends, where randomization is like a core game mechanic ends. Uh, you know, in terms of like a lot of these, a lot of these distinctions to me seem a little more arbitrary than yeah. than they might be to to folks that know the genre. So for me, it's hard to really answer in terms of like just how amorphous the whole thing is in terms of games and styles influencing each other. For me, it, it even calling. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the Torchlight series is is in that same style of ARPGs more or less that the that most of my titles have been in for for the past uh, twenty five years, but it's still fuzzy when you look at the actual game design principles that make it what it is in terms of like, you know, is it just a camera? Is that the real difference between, I mean, cause I think that's a lot of like what the genre is, is just having the isometric perspective. Right. It doesn't necessarily see it as a discrete genre per se, you know, sorry if that's not a, that's, <laughs> that no, no worries. Uh, so Max Diablo two felt big in the moment, both I mean, gameplay wise with the world itself and and uh, Matt certainly soundtrack uh, soundtrack wise as well was was that the goal to just blow everything out coming off of Diablo one yeah absolutely yeah yeah I mean the, the first immediate uh, uh, sign of that was we we were actually outside playing you know um, all of Diablo one other than when you were in town t- takes place down in dungeons right underneath right. the town and like so our our first. Uh, our first design goal kind of was let's get outside and let's roam the countryside and see what this world is really like. Um, and, uh, and, and that just made it feel expansive right off the bat. And then um, going from kind of the Irish countryside, you know, traditional castles and knights, Gothic uh, 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 atmosphere to the desert, you know, and a more, you know, uh, almost Arabian influence and, um and and really like going around the world, it definitely was was deliberate. Um, and yeah, it, it made it feel big, and it made it feel like like this is a this isn't just something that's happening in a little fake town. This is there's a real world behind all of this, and doing that implies like the rest of the world as well, you know. So like showing glimpses here and there kind of implies a really big, expansive world. Um, and uh, and I think that on the other side. Um, like the the guys down at, at at the Blizzard headquarters did our cinematics, and they they also contributed that to that a lot. It really yeah. gave it gave it immediately an epic feel, and like this has gone from you know a really cool new kind of game into like a really big AAA production, and uh, that helped a lot as well. Uh, Matt, you've probably answered this a million times before, so pardon me here, but. Where does the acoustic, the, the now legendary acoustic guitar riff for the town music in Diablo One come from? Are you does does a melody just come to you in the shower one day? Or are you just messing around on a guitar? What's the origin story of that? Um. Well, core of uh, of uh, the Tristram theme is physically really really simple on the guitar. I mean, it's just. So, you know, it's a very, um, that part is actually really physically easy. Yeah. I think I liked, I think I liked the fact that you could do something that's straightforward and physical just in terms of like what's going on with the fretboard up there, but it still kind of gave you a lot of options in terms of where you go harmonically from that. This is, even though it's physically very simple to play, it's just two fingers on the F sharp and A sharp. 
it's kind of an interesting chord that uh, can be like a dominant chord that goes up to here, or it can do can kind of wander back down to A minor. Um, so that part was just kind of based on me noodling around on guitar a lot in that phase and just yeah. enjoying doing finger picking stuff. Uh, a lot of like waltzy kind of Peruvian stuff uh, that I just happen to enjoy for whatever reason. And a lot of just enjoying the, um, the 12 string element. Um, I always kind of like that sound in, uh, in seventies, uh, like the, basically all the bands that, uh, that were recording for Geffen around that time that had a really, 12 stringy sound like uh like johnny mitchell neil young yeah you know, crosby stills and the young types i always kind of liked the um and i explored this more with uh with diablo 2 i just liked the sounds that were kind of stock rock sounds from the mid 70s when people use things like pedal steels and and uh 12 strings a lot and you know zeppelin of course used both those things in their arrangements uh for their bag of tricks so it just kind of naturally came out in the mix it was just a all those elements were part of a natural soup. In terms of the big th the thematic element, the uh, I mean, that's kind of a close cousin of traditional kind of spooky. <laughs> right? So it's a, uh, that was pretty natural in terms of being like a main core theme for like a horror, a horror thing. It's pretty close to, uh, to the feel that you get uh, from those kind of big doomy melodies from like the 19th century. Which is definitely what I was going for. I really, well, I, kind of, I tried to kind of include everything in that kitchen sink at, at all times. Yeah, I, <laughs> I never, I would not have expected the part of the soul of Diablo II's soundtrack to ultimately be rooted in '70s rock. But there you go. Oh, it I definitely, is. It definitely. This is well, why. You, <laughs> this you is know, why you know what it really interviews. is is uh, Stairway to Heaven just creeping, creeping the bejesus out of me when I was like <laughs> 9 a.m. And there was something kind of chimey and medieval and spooky about the sound of Stairway to Heaven. And that, I think, went into my psyche and came out in a big way like 10 years later uh, in terms of just because it is kind of the intro to Stairway to Heaven. And it's, it's kind of spooky. Like, what's this witchy lady doing walking around with the chimey music? It's uh, <laughs> that kind of like that kind of creepy, like, did these guys really sell their souls to the devil? You know, the, uh, the whole kind of mythology around Zeppelin, yeah. and the way it goes with that tune. That was definitely a big part of it. And of course, I always loved what um, any any musician obviously has to be to some degree a uh, a fan of like how, you know, of what Jimmy Page did on a bunch of guitar parts. And of course, uh, you know, as I always tell the next generation that John Bonham may barely edge out Hendrix himself as being the greatest rock instrumentalist just because that sound was so... Uh, yeah, kind of so yeah absolutely. Um, you know that 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 bottom drum sound doesn't have much to do with the aesthetic I alluded to. You know, create the twelve string sound, but it was definitely part of it. I like the word, the use of the word "loot" there. That's very on brand <laughs> for Diablo. Um, <laughs> Max, whose idea? Where did the idea for the the that end moment of Diablo come from? With shoving the soul stone in your own head, I I remember when that happened. I was just like, "What? No!" <laughs> I got to give credit to the cinematics guys down at uh, Blizzard South for that one. Uh, was that a Metzen yeah. touch? Was that a Metzen idea? I believe it was Chris Metzen. I believe it was Chris Metzen. It sounds like a Chris Metzen thing now. Um, and uh, yeah, we were we were the same way. We were like, "What?" <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it was very cool. We 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 hopped on board with that one right away. Um, but yeah, it was it all credit to the guys 
uh, uh, down at the Blizzard headquarters. And, you know, it, it kind of brings up a topic that a lot of the times we make games that are based on loot and monsters and, and environments and dungeons and the, and the gameplay of it all. And we sort of weave the story in later. And I, I, I yeah. know that that might be disappointing to some people, but um, we really do it that way because the gameplay comes first, you know, and your experience and the clicking and the getting the loot and making yourself look cool and all that is primary in all of this. Um, but man, they did a great job with that one. That, that, that was a super fun twist. So uh, Max, Blizzard is, is pretty famous for just taking their time, throwing anything away that they need to until they get it right. And that's, I think it's fair to say it's still true now. And it was certainly true when you guys were there. So I'm curious, is there, are there major chunks of gameplay, like maybe even an entire act of Diablo two that, that never saw the light of day that, that we've never seen? Um, no, actually, I don't think so. I think that, that, um, that, that, you know, it takes, a lot of effort to make one of the acts, you know, and, and you don't want to throw it away, but for, for sure, 100% um, it were, they were iterated on to the point where they didn't look a whole lot like they did at the beginning. Um, so we would rather, you know, like take the time to just twist it around and re reconfigure it and, um, and, and warp it into where we wanted it to be um, rather than throw it away. Um, now, certainly certain monsters were thrown away and certain abilities and, and this and that all the time. But as far as the big stuff, um, you know, it just takes such a time investment in it um, right. that that they were more iterated on and reconfigured and remashed up to uh, to, to make what we wanted. Um, there were, I, I can think of some little things I made. I remember I made a little tower that never went into the game that had some gameplay in it that just never really worked. And so we got rid of it. Um, so little things, yes. I mean, little things here and there all the way through it, but we never like made a whole sure. act and then said, let's get rid of this whole thing because usually it becomes apparent whether it's working or not fairly early. Um, and before yeah. you've really invested all that time into it. You and I were talking <laughs> earlier that, that really the a key with, with action RPGs that, that you uh, are so specialized in making is to get it up and running and playable early because you're constantly tweaking and balancing it. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really really important that you're playing it from the very beginning um, and being critical about it. And we'd have just endless sessions where we were just standing behind someone playing and pointing and talking about it and you know establishing what we had to fix and what has to get better. And that happens, like I said, as early in the project as 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 possible and goes till the very last day that you're allowed to still be making stuff for the game. Um, and that's I think that's key. Especially in our ARPGs, but I suspect it's it's largely true for for most video games. Yeah, uh, Matt, I want to come back to you. So even in this interview, you've got an instrument in arm's reach. Uh, you are, I think it's fair to say, a musical savant. I read your bio. You went to Georgetown. You've won awards. Uh, you play a million different instruments. Not everybody can do that by by any stretch of the imagination. So. I say all that and I build you up to ask this question, which is, did your parents think it was ridiculous that, that you would use all that talent to go into video games or were they super supportive? You know, they were, they were very much supportive in that. And, you know, I was really lucky in that um, I had the luxury of uh being a bum at my parents' place the year after I graduated from college when I was just turning 21. Um, and I had the, I had the luxury of bugging the Schaefer's 
for months uh, to to give me a salary gig. Um, you know, so there was very much they were you know they weren't supportive in terms of like yeah that's great follow your dreams and make a demo and whatever that was all me and they did they were pretty oblivious to all of it but they were really supportive yeah. in that they had they had a kid in a recession um i was really really lucky to come out of college with no debt when that was a much easier thing to do um you know 20 26 27 years ago uh but they, i i was very lucky in that i was able just to be a bum and uh, i don't think I don't think Condor gave me uh, my first paycheck until like April around 94. So I'd been back at my friend, my parents' place in San Jose for like 10 months at that point. So yeah. And that's really kind of like the most important kind of support is not like being someone's coach, but just giving right. them like a room to sleep in or a couch to surf on while they, while they hustle. I mean, you know, sometimes people don't take advantage of the opportunity. It's just the luck isn't there, but I was very, very lucky that I had that. Uh, if I was doing some kind of horrible call center job, you know, or something like along those lines, then I would not have had that uh, that option. Yeah, I don't think any of our so parents a, a in that gen- structure. Yeah, yeah, I don't think any of our parents at that generation knew um, or grasped that making video games was uh, anything approaching a career. Um, and and honestly, it hadn't been until fairly recently, prior to that point. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think, I think what Matt said is absolutely right. Just being there and supporting whatever it is that we were doing was, it was important for both of us, I think. Um, and, uh, they were as surprised, I think they were more surprised than we were to find out that it is a real thing and a business and, and something that you can make a career around. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I brought it up. Not to, for like younger listeners that that are listening to this or watching this going, wait a minute, Ryan, why are you insulting video games like that? No, it's, it was a, there, there was this this mindset that video games were just toys and for kids and not a, not a real thing that you would devote your life to. So I'm, I'm always kind but, of curious to ask guests about their, about their uh, parents' relationship to their career, to your career. However, however, if you've been paying attention, then you did notice just on the business level that Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, which were the two platforms that uh, the two uh, versions of Justice League we originally did with what became the two core Blizzard teams. Right. If you if you have been paying attention, you notice that both those platforms were pretty big and made and were didn't make the money of a major industry. Now, despite that, yeah. of course, we saw in our early Blizzard North years, uh, Sega fade very very fast as we were kind of on the rise from Diablo one to Diablo two. Sega kind of went from being one of like the big companies that was like kind of our studio system 101 corridor we saw them fade very very fast in that period too so on one hand from the perspective of 94 you still said well nintendo and sega are big industry you know big companies making a lot of money uh but on the other hand sega was kind of you know they they were a much reduced entity by the time the dreamcast came out and so in some ways it was kind of a a business that wasn't as stable as it might have seemed of course if you really know the industry you know, Nintendo was built on a corporate culture that goes back to them selling playing cards at 89. Oh, yeah. So, you know, they're a little, they're, their foundations were a little deeper. Yeah. And, and for people wondering, what, you, what you're referring to there is the fascinating origin of Blizzard North, where, again, when you were Condor, you were contracted to make, it was two developers, the other being what was Blizzard South, two developers contracted to make the same game, yes. but 
completely independently of each other mm-hmm. on the two different platforms, Super NES mm-hmm. and Genesis, which I don't know, like nowadays one team will make the same version for and just put it out on multiple platforms. But back then they had more hardware differences and you right. guys actually both made the Justice League video game, yeah. but it was just two completely different interpretations. Mm-hmm. It's like if you handed, Matt, it's like if somebody, if you handed uh, you and another artist two uh, lyric sheets and said, make a song around this, you'd come right. out with two different, to- totally different songs. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Yeah, it was crazy. We, we didn't even know that there was another team doing a Super Nintendo version for a while. Um, and the two games came out simultaneously and didn't share a single pixel of art between them. Um, and yeah, wow. I've, I've never heard of that arrangement before or since. Um, so it, it was just like some sort of divine intervention that, that was put in place so that we would meet the Blizzard guys. They were, they were called Silicon and Synapse at the time. And, uh, and we just kind of got to know them, you know, meeting at one of the conventions. It was the Consumer Electronics Show at the time was, right. the, the, was yeah. the E3 uh, equivalent. When it was still in Vegas, actually. Yes, it was in Vegas. Still in Vegas and, uh, for a couple of years. Last so two years there. We had our video games being demoed next to car stereos and all kinds of other consumer <laughs> electronics. Um, but we got to know those guys there. And that, you know, led fairly directly to the point when we were wandering the conventions with our Diablo pitch packet. Uh, trying to get someone to listen to us to make a, a PC game, um, they were they were the only people that that took interest in it. Uh, I think we were rejected by every major publisher um, in the industry at the time because we literally tried to get it into everyone's hands, and um, maybe only about a third would hear us out at all. And of those, they all rejected it. Um, but the the guys at Blizzard said, "Hey, this 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 actually sounds like something," and um, it just went from there. And that's really uh, that's a big part of the secret of, of Blizzard's success is that Alan and Mike were genuinely nerdy enough to appreciate it, whereas not everybody in the industry was. And that, that really was the difference maker. I mean, yeah. along with uh, with them being obsessive about QA, which was a good thing to be obsessive and neurotic about when you're making video. Matt, I want to come back to you for a second. Now, you've worked on Diablo, obviously. You've also worked on StarCraft. You've worked on World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. You've worked on Torchlight. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, Pick a favorite child. What has been your favorite project to work on? Like, which is the one where if I asked you, hey, what's your best work? What's the best video game work you've ever done? Which soundtrack disc are you going to hand me? Well, I want to say my best soundtrack is Torchlight 3. Um <laughs> I mean, we're promoing it. So I'm I hope so. Yeah, right. I mean, I actually, believe, I actually kind of believe it. Uh, we put a lot of work 
we put a lot of work into the soundtrack. We did uh, we did a live session in Mexico. We did a live session in Slovakia. Uh, I did you know there's recording that uh, you know it's it's from we there's so much work from so many different places and um, technically I really tried to push myself in a way I have not done at all in my entire 25 years in games in terms of trying to finally do a soundtrack where I'm matching up a little to the uh, the ambitions of what actually was in the industry significantly before I was in it. Way back before my first game, LucasArts was doing, um, was doing uh, truly interactive systems uh, with the old Tim Schafer titles, the really old ones, like way back in like 90, 91, 92. Uh, yeah, so Monkey Island, that, Maniac Mansion. Yeah, yeah, and I felt, I felt it was time to... Uh, I felt it was time for me to finally catch up 25 years later and do a truly interactive soundtrack that solved, uh, that solved the ARPG design problem of how do you do a truly interactive soundtrack that is both satisfying with, um, and this is actually, there's an extra element in TL3 and that we have resource, uh, we have resource gathering too, a little more methodically of a resource game in terms of uh, trees and rocks and whatnot. How do you make a chill resource gathering exploration soundtrack that mutates into a big orgy cavalcade of violence soundtrack using the exact same track? So Torchlight 3 was where finally 25 years later um, I, I had the team and the technology had evolved enough such that it was time to finally try to do a soundtrack where action tracks were both things. And so I did that goal and I think some of the better action tracks in Torchlight 3 succeed there. And I did another big goal, which I had not done in previous stuff, where I actually had kind of a fantasy, ethnic-ish instrument in front of a actual live, a live full, like, 80, 90-piece orchestra for, like, a big showcase fantasy thing. And we managed to do that uh, a year and a half ago as well. So those are two things that, that I hadn't done in, uh, in previous projects that I'm, I'm definitely proud of. I mean, there's all, for me, my real highlights over the past 26 years is really like working with people that are every bit as crazy as me, like Ben Haas and Michio Okamura <laughs> and, and, you know, just stuff like that. I mean, that's what I really love most about my time in the business is just all the, uh, all the completely insane people that I've been able to work with and how much I love them and how much I've enjoyed that. Immensely. How would you That's classify exactly Torchlight and I guess specifically Torchlight 3's musical identity in comparison to Diablo? Sort of what's, what's, how is it different? That's a great question. Uh, well, you know, the, the thing that I played before with the, the main Diablo theme, that obviously that resolves to a, a nice heavy metal tritone thing. Whereas in Torchlight, the original Torchlight theme, I was trying really hard to be uh, a little more um, kind of sweet and melodic. So the main Torchlight theme is, you know, so it's a little bit more as opposed to. So we were kind of trying to go for like a sweeter, more accessible world from the very beginning yeah. with Torchlight. And, um, and I've tried to be a little more, uh, I've tried to, I've tried the big thematic elements to keep them kind of straightforward, uh, in terms of the Smetna theme that we use as the title theme in Torchlight 2 and that we brought back for this, 
it's kind of the same spirit. I'm kind of trying to keep keep the musical identity for the core parts uh, pretty straightforward and, and kind of on the sweeter side. So Matt, I want to put you on the spot. If Blizzard picks up the phone and says, Matt, we'd like you to score Diablo 4, do you uh, do you take that call? Do you say yes? And then Max, would that make you mad if he said yes? <laughs> you first, Matt. <laughs> um, I'm genuinely curious. I'm not trying to set you up. No, it's it's the kind of thing where I have a I have a great gig right now with uh, with Ector, so it's just not something where I'm looking, you know. But yeah. uh, I would always talk to uh, I'm friends with Derek Duke and talk to him every couple of years. And if Derek has something to ask me, that I would I would definitely respond and be curious to what he's up to because I like him as a person. And that's uh, you know, and I always tried really hard to uh, to remember that all the characters that I've worked with over the years you know, are people and I judge them as people on whether or not I like them as people. And that really doesn't have much to do with who, you know, where the paycheck comes from at any given time. Because people will work for different, yeah. on different projects and for different people over different times. I really try to see people as individuals. And, uh, and that goes definitely with everybody that I worked with in the Bay Area and in Irvine. Um, and absolutely goes with like all the folks that I was really lucky enough to work with on, uh, on the Runic team. Who I really I like on a personal level. Um, Max, if, <laughs> when you're when you're first when you're first forging out and and making Torchlight, is it is it intimidating to follow what you've done with Diablo, or is it just completely like freeing? I because I could kind of see it potentially going either way. Um, it's it's a little of both. I mean, anything that we do after Diablo is going to be compared and, you know, put on the scale with it and weighed. Um, but when we made Torchlight 1, it was a tiny team. Um, we Our goal was to get a game out as fast as possible. Um, and the entire game went, for, you know, the entire development of that game was uh, blank screens with bl- computers with nothing on it to a uh, finished project in 11 months, which is lightning wow. lightning speed for for this sort of for this sort of game um and so i think that we had automatically set our at least financial expectations um much lower um and and rightfully so uh because it's very difficult like you know you recited some of the figures earlier it's very difficult to to make that kind of impact and and we never expect to um so it was it was uh it was freeing in a way that we didn't with that size of team and that scale of project we didn't have to fully measure up. Um, but we did at the same time want it to feel and play like a, like a top notch, uh, triple a game in a, in a double a single a wrapper. Um, and, and so there was definitely, definitely pressure for that. Um, and we were lucky enough to be working with again, very, very, very talented people, Matt included. Um, and, and it made the, the whole, the whole development of that project was, was, was kind of a joy. You know, it, there is, there's something to be said for it going that quickly because, it isn't the marathon that that a lot of these games are, um, and you didn't really have time to burn out, you know. And I think that in any you know four or five year game cycle, there you you go through s- periods of burnout and periods of getting back right. into it, um, and there just wasn't time for it in that one. So it all my memories of it are good, um, and and uh, and it was it was a fun project to work on. So venturing out you know knowing that we were doing stylistically a different thing and kind of a different whole scale and economic it was a 20 dollar game you know um and just that that yeah. alone freed it up to to not 
necessarily be in direct comparison to uh, to, to Diablo. Um, at the same time, right. it was compared, and very frequently, especially with Torchlight Two, uh, we saw articles in the in the media that were like, you know, Torchlight Two versus Diablo Three, and uh, you know, uh, just by virtue of having that comparison, we benefited. You know, it's like I don't even care what happens sure. in the article below that. <laughs> it doesn't even matter what their what their conclusions are. Just the fact that you know we were a, again a brand new studio um, and and just starting out again with a brand new franchise. The fact that we were being compared in an article was good enough. Um, and uh, and and so yeah, we were we were thankful about that. Yeah, but it's it's impossible to really recreate what we did uh, with the Diablos. I think. Well, uh, I want you, I want to tell you a quick personal anecdote, which is that I I paid fifty dollars for someone's beta disc of Diablo two back uh, back in the day, and and I'll tell you it was worth every penny because awesome. I don't even remember how I found this person online because I don't think Craigslist had been invented yet. But I ended up I went over to this guy's house, watched him play the beta for a while, and then gave him the money, and I walked away with the disc because. I wasn't selected for the beta. Uh, you know, I don't know how the heck you guys did it, if it was random, if it was whatever, certain geography or what have you. But but that's the point of that anecdote is to say, that's how anticipated Diablo 2 was at the time, that you had this fervor for even the beta of it. Did, did you guys internally have any sense of that excitement at the time? I mean, a little bit, yes. Um, to some extent, especially towards the end, we were so sleep-deprived and single-minded uh, focus on on finishing this thing because we were, you know, we were late. <laughs> we had gone over budget and overtime on the on the on the project, and so there was, even though Blizzard says, yeah, get it right, take whatever time you you want. Blizzard was also had random corporate ownership that changed every year during a lot of this time, and there was pressure coming from you know whoever it was at the time. Um, to to make some money and get this thing out, uh, so we felt pressure. We were still going to take whatever time it took, but it kind of kept us from even like being aware of the outside world in a way. Yeah, um, we know that when we went to like the the E three equivalents, whatever it was at the time, that uh, that you know there were lines at our booth and there was a lot of people that that were uh, anticipating it, um, but not really appreciating the scale of it just because. We were exhausted. <laughs> um, that, anyway, that, that's my memories of it. I don't know, Matt, if you were aware, more aware of what was going on. Um, it was such a profoundly weird time in San Mateo. Uh, and we moved in early 99 as well. There was such a feeling of... Uh, remember, the, the, dot, the original dot-com bubble peaked. NASDAQ hit like 5,200, uh, like March 2000. So just like literally the week we were going gold, wow. the entire kind of dot-com world that had surrounded us during the development of Diablo 2 uh, was like just collapsing overnight. So it was a really kind of strange time to have phone.com like upstairs from us and to try to keep the, game, try to keep the team um, together in the last year of development was a struggle because it had... Uh, had like a and a pitch ride that original dot wave. So just keeping like a team of like coders and design types, you know, focused made was hard. And then just as we go gold, uh, that entire world kind of collapses. So, I mean, it's, it's really hard to take the experience of making it and releasing it 
and take it out of that context because it was crazy in terms of like the rise and fall and like you know the who playing parties uh at like dingy hotels in the tenderloin in 98 <laughs> and then it all being empty like two years later and that was that was the background with a diablo too and is we we you know made the rise up and then released it uh we went gold right as right as that world was crashing yeah, I think we've done a good job wow. of timing everything we do to major international crises. <laughs> yes. um, you know, we, we, we started Runic in 2008, right in the, in the, uh, the banking crisis. And uh, now here we are going to release uh, Torchlight 3 in the, uh, in the COVID nightmare. Um, so I, I, we pick our spots, don't we? <laughs> Kind of like so what you're saying. Be seven or eight years, you know. <laughs> what you're saying is we need to get you guys to stop making games. Is that what we? Is that the message here? For the sake of humanity, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Well, I mean, Max, you kind of touched on this. So you start you started Torchlight at Runic, which was a studio that you co-founded with a number of ex Blizzard North folks. That came after Flagship, which I don't even have time. Like I'd need two hours with you to go through all that. We'll come back uh, for that. <laughs> which, yeah, we'll save it for your next appearance. Uh, but that didn't work out. So at Runic, you do two Torchlight games, and then you started an MMO version uh, that you had wanted to make, and it's that's Torchlight Frontiers. But then here's here's where it gets wild to me, and correct, correct me if I've got this wrong. Your brother leaves the studio totally amicably to go do Rebel Galaxy, and you really needed him to do the MMO, and so you pulled back on it, and then you end up. This is uh, a little wrong. Leaving, leaving the studio, <laughs> and, so and this, here we are, and yeah. now you've got a new studio for Torchlight Three. No, this is a little. There's a little bit mixed up in there. So, um, okay, at the end of Torchlight Two, uh, right then was when Eric and Travis Baldry left the studio. Um, yeah. We were actually had started in making a different g- game entirely. Um, that that uh, morphed into what became Hob that that Runic had made, but they left before there was any Torchlight Frontiers. After the end of Torchlight Two, um, both of them were burned out on on uh, Torchlight and ARPGs and wanted to do something else, which is why they left again amicably. Um, yeah. Both of them are don't like uh, big companies and having to deal with lots of employees, so they just wanted to make a game on their own. Um, so the, the rest of the Runic studio was also burned out and didn't want to do Torchlight, uh, and make an MMO or any further Torchlight, at least right away. Um, and so they went on to make Hob and about, yes, about halfway through making Hob, uh, Perfect World, our publisher approached me and said, Hey Max, we really want to keep going with Torchlight stuff. And they knew I did as well. And they said, start a new studio down in, uh, San Francisco and, um, and make Torchlight stuff and, and we'll pay for it. And so I was all over that uh, because that is not an offer you get very often. Um, sure. And so I, I grabbed the the people I needed, both from the the Runic team and from old Diablo two guys, and and a bunch of really really good talented new people. And we started making Torchlight Frontiers. Um, but it was without all the with, it was without Eric and Travis and all those guys right from the beginning. And what we realized um, after a while was. All of the the MMOE parts of Torchlight Frontiers, we could do without it being an MMO, without it being a free-to-play item sales game. We could preserve all the fun stuff and 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 uh, and cool, you know, shared world, shared town MMOE bits that we were making um, 
but get rid of the the free to play baggage and and the other things that were that were kind of forcing us into design decisions that weren't right and didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made we made a decision internally to uh, to kind of rebrand as as a premium title, you know, a one time purchase, um, and not have to worry about making long game loops that supported monetization. We were going to do a pretty gentle monetization scheme, but it still did. Uh, require making the game loops to support it, and it just wasn't fitting well with the Torchlight-style ARPG, which is supposed to just be a rollicking good time from beginning to end, right? So we didn't we we didn't want to be thinking about well, how can we make them gather resources for months so that they can do this and buy this and and whatever? Those were all decisions that were not that were not right for us and were not right for the game. And the game itself was telling us, you know, this isn't what it is. Um, you should pivot. And fortunately, the, the the good people at Perfect World were supportive of the pivot. Um, you know, they play the game too all the time, and um, I think the market was sort of changing too, where premium right. titles were were becoming more acceptable again, and were making money all over the world, including in China. Um, whereas when we started the project, it was like to be globally monetizable, it has to be free to play. That was really no longer the case. And so I think we all kind of were had a meeting of the minds and said, hey, let's pivot and and turn it back into a, a one time purchase. Um, and just focus every design decision we make on: Is this fun? And is this cool? And is this does this add to the adventure that is the Torchlight universe? Um, and and I think the game improved a lot by doing that. Uh, and and certainly we had more fun immediately playing it ourselves and making it. Uh, so so that was a pivot that I think that 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 everyone got on board with pretty quick, including our our beta players and and the public as a whole. So with Torchlight three right around the corner now. Uh, for Diablo fans that might not have played a Torchlight yet, what is your message to those fans as you as you try to invite them in to check out Torchlight? Oh, just you know, come in and and immerse yourself and and sink yourself into our world because it's completely different than Diablo and yet exactly the same. Uh, if I can say that, you know, it's the, you you will be Im- immediately familiar with the mechanics of it. But uh, it's it's just the tone is completely different. The world is completely different. It doesn't take itself so seriously. Um, and yet it has, you know, it expands on a lot of the things that made Diablo 2 fun. And again, I'm, it's no knock on the dark gothic uh, Diablo style because that's super yeah. fun to, to, to make and play as well. Um, but but torchlight is sort of like the uh, the dessert. It's the you know the sherbet after the uh, the long meal. Um, but you know, come on in and just have fun with it. Uh, I think that it's that it's a very inviting universe. Um, it's got you know being a little less serious has let us be a little more creative with the character types and the abilities and the environments and the monsters. Um, it's it's freed us up in a way just to explore the whole idea of having fun uh, rather than you know having to save the world <laughs> from imminent doom at all times. Um, there's that too. You're doing that also. Don't worry. But <laughs> Netherrealm are still out there. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's dangerous. You know, there's scary <laughs> monsters, but it's, it's all a little bit more fun and a little bit more lighthearted. And that is that is sometimes a welcome respite from the kind of relentless doom and gloom that not just Diablo but a lot of games have. Um, Again, totally valid. I love those too, um, but you know it is nice to, to to get a little bit of a unicorn chaser after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, piggybacking off of that, for for each of you, what lessons does Torchlight Three learn from your previous work, whether it's previous Torchlights and or Diablo? 
Um, uh, it, it, a couple of big ones. First, even in the Diablo days, we really wanted to make it feel more of a, I mean, it was multiplayer, but it, you didn't really get a sense of a shared world. You would party up with people and go off and you were the humans in the world that were, uh, were doing things. So having just a shared town and some of the MMOE elements, uh, like a shared town and shared instances where you'll see other players, um, gave it gave it a more community feel and, and we always wanted to do that with Diablo and we are able to do it now with Torchlight. Um, and the other thing is our we have a very innovative fort system in the game and it isn't just player housing um, you know where you store your trophies and stuff. It is that and it's something you can decorate ad nauseum in a really cool way. Um, but it also has profound gameplay implications. Like so your whole account has a fort and and things you do in your fort in some cases have give you bonuses to all of your account's characters. Like for example, oh, cool. you can you can plant a luck tree in your fort. And by feeding the luck tree magic items, you grow the luck tree. And that gives all of your characters a magic find bonus. You know, so so all of your guys can can uh, you know have a little bit better magic find the more you grow your luck tree. And the other cool thing about this is that we put people's forts kind of randomly throughout our world. So you as you as you progress through our story, you will come upon other people's forts. And if they have, for example, have grown a luck tree, I can use it kind of like a shrine and get a temporary magic bonus by sacrificing one of my magic items to it. And then for the next, you know, five minutes of gameplay, I will have a little bit of a magic boost. So there's things that, and I can use their enchanting table and things like that and use the recipes that they've unlocked at their enchanting table. So it's, it's worth my while to explore their fort and see what they've had to offer. Um, and and that's, that's another thing that is kind of tying the whole group of players together that we were never able to do in our previous iterations. Matt, what do you say to that one, to uh, previous learning lessons from your previous work here heading into Torchlight 3? Well, for me personally, my main differentiator was the interactive stuff I was talking about before in yeah. terms of tools like FMOD finally being evolved enough that I could, uh, I could make a truly interactive soundtrack. But I definitely like, uh, I definitely hope, we're being, we're being pretty ambitious with uh, game mechanics and skills in this title. We're doing a lot of uh, all four characters, all four classes are very distinctive uh, and they all have like three or four parallel tracks of skills that, that go with your runic with a, that are attached to your relic item and whatnot. Uh, I don't want to give away spoilers or too many details of the game. I don't, I don't know what we've actually talked about in terms of design features, but we are being very, we're, Torchlight 3 might seem like a relatively vanilla-ish ARPG on the surface, but there's a lot of stuff where we really try to make the, the mechanics thick and overlapping with the skills, things like the action music, you know, in terms of the subtle stuff that I did. There's a lot of more kind of subtle things around the formula that we try to, that we tried to develop. And hopefully people appreciate that. Hopefully people enjoy the fort mechanic and, uh, and hopefully, like, you know, even though it's not necessarily a noticed, like, discrete event, hopefully the way that I use randomization in the soundtrack helps kind of push the art form along to a new state where we uh, expect uh, action soundtracks to have randomized elements and uh, elements that, you know, it makes the old paper loop seem old. That was my goal, the music-wise. Yeah, the approachability well, of the game shouldn't be uh, uh, 
confused with lack of depth because I think that we have like right, more right. variety in the kind of builds you can make with your character mm -hmm. than any game that we've done previously, um, just by the combination of mechanics. Um, it actually is really, really deep, and uh, and it's been really fun to explore different ways than just having a big skill tree full of useless skills to make variety in, in your builds. Well, you guys have a lot to celebrate. Torchlight 3 heading into early access soon, as of when this, this interview is posting at the, it will, it, the it will end be of out. June. It, it will it, be out. It, it, it is out. It is out it is right out. now, people. <laughs> right now, as you hear this. <laughs> uh, on Steam for uh, $29.99. Come in and get your early access price. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, and um, you'll be able to see all of the really cool finishing touches we put on the game, because we are still in development. Um, and so you will see kind of the final evolution of a game product, if that's something that interests you. And then we're also noting and celebrating the 20th anniversary of Diablo II, one of the best games ever. Now, do you do you guys keep in touch with uh, David Brevik or any of the ex-Blizzard North folks? Is there, like, would you guys do a reunion? Like, would you guys all try to get as many of you together again as possible to kind of mark the occasion? Uh, totally. I mean, I we see Dave Brevik a lot. Uh, you know, we he has got an amazing Scotch selection, so I try not to be too far away from there. Um, <laughs> and and we've got a, a, a several of the old uh, you know key guys from from uh, Blizzard North on the Torchlight Three project. So I obviously I see them a lot. We've got like five or six people. Um, and uh, and yeah, and and my brother, you know, he uh, I, I see him every day basically, and uh, you know he's. He and uh, Travis Baldry have put out this the sequel to Rebel Galaxy now, the Rebel Galaxy Outlaw, um, oh, well, which yeah. is yeah, which is out on it's a it's an epic exclusive, but it's going to be on Steam very soon and with console versions very soon, and that's a lot of fun to see that all happen. So yeah, we 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 definitely keep in touch. Um, it was really a, a, a video game making family more than a company, as Matt alluded to before, and it's the people that that have have made it tolerable to be doing this for several decades at this point. <laughs> Thank you, Max. Thank you, Matt. Look for Torchlight 3 on Steam Early Access. Right now, Diablo fans should feel right at home. And hey, happy 20th anniversary to Diablo 2 as well. That wraps it up for this month's episode of IGN Unfiltered. For more from the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry, look for a new episode every month on IGN, on YouTube, on your favorite podcast service. And don't miss there are 50 other episodes that you can check out as well. Welcome. You've got Monsters lurk in the shadowy corners of the internet. Our darkest fears peer back at us from the depths of the web. We can all... <coughs> hey, holy hey, Linda Blair. Are you all right? No. Can we maybe do this a different tone? Hey there, I'm Perry Carpenter. And I'm Mason Amadeus. On our podcast, Digital Folklore, we explore monsters, memes, and everything in between. Looking at our digital expressions through the lens of folklore, we break down the stories and communities we create online. And we try to make it a lot of fun. The show is presented in an audio drama style with a narrative and soundscape that's designed to draw you in. We weave insightful research and expert interviews with humor and storytelling. Come check it out. Search Digital Folklore wherever you get your podcasts.